You're listening to a sermon series by Grace City Church, a church plant in Green Square in Sydney. For more information about us, visit gracecity.com.au. G'day there. It's good to be with you. Uh, My name is Tim, and yeah, it's a privilege to jump into today's passage. As we do, uh, it will come as, if you've been around for a while, uh, it will come as no surprise to you that I have something of an obsession with C.S. Lewis. Uh, I don't know how many others here share that obsession, but it's definitely one of mine. Uh, and as part of that obsession, I've found myself semi-recently in the last few months reading a number of biographies on his life as well as his own autobiography. Uh, and as I've been doing it, one of the things that struck me is his take on the imagination. Uh, see, if you're not familiar with him, uh, he wrote a number of works, including the Chronicles of Narnia. The man was gifted with a phenomenal imagination. The thing is, growing up as a teenager, he was an atheist. Actually, until his early 30s, he was an atheist. Uh, Something almost of a a teenage Richard Dawkins, quite a phenomenal atheist. But one of the challenges he found in his teenage years is he found it difficult to square the joy of his imagination with his beliefs about reality. They didn't seem to fit for him. And so uh, in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he writes this. He says, the two hemispheres of my mind are in the sharpest contrast. On the one side, a many-islanded sea of poetry and myth, and on the other, a glib and shallow rationalism. Nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. Uh, For the teenage Lewis, the imagination was rich and exciting, but he also thought it's all made up, and so it's not real. Uh, In stark contrast to that, he felt was reality, which was just the realm of cold, hard facts. So that's kind of him as a teenager growing up. Uh, In the end, as I say, he gets converted in his early 30s, but uh, part of his conversion, his awakening, was what he describes as the baptism of his imagination. It was the process by which he came to realize, you know what? Uh, the imagination plays a significant role in the life of faith and uh, the disciple. And so later on, he would go on to write this. He said, for me, reason is the natural organ of truth. So he was a deep rationalist. He was a rational thinker committed to logic and reason. But he goes on, imagination is the organ of meaning. He described himself as a rationalist and a romantic Now, that quote is slightly quirky to understand, but uh, what he's trying to get at is that uh, the imagination, sometimes it's only through the imagination that we're actually able to understand the meaning of certain truths. And so the imagination has a way of unlocking new worlds of meaning for us. That's why he wrote stories, Uh, not to help us escape from reality, but to help us to experience reality in a whole new way, in a deeper and sometimes far more profound way. And so take Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, It's one thing to talk about the love of God and the holiness of God. It's another to describe a ferocious lion who will growl at you and sometimes even maim you if he has to. And yet at the same time, this lion will allow a little girl like Lucy to nuzzle her nose in his mane and uh, give him a hug. And it's that great quote, that famous quote, you know, is he safe? Of course he's not safe. 
He's a lion, the great lion, but he's good, I tell you. you know, through the imagination and the telling of stories, Lewis sort of gives us the ability to both taste and see the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ. Now, you might be sitting there going, where is Tim going with this? Um, the reason I bring all this up is because Lewis learned what Jesus Christ knew all along. And that is that the imagination is the key to experiencing meaning, depth, and beauty in life. And so Jesus was a storyteller. He told stories of sons that ran away, of coins that got lost, and of pearls found in a field. And with each of those stories, he offers us a taste of reality and invites us to imagine what life would be like with him. Now, today's uh, passage doesn't have any of those major stories, but it does have a few choice words, poetic language, as well as a, a short parable or two, all of which Jesus is using to paint a picture for us, to invite us to imagine what life would be like with him. He'll talk about a doctor, a bridegroom, new wine, a patch. The problem is uh, the people he's painting for have no imagination. Uh, they're the Pharisees. They're the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And a little like uh, Lewis before he was converted, they were committed to a worldview which was dull and dreary and boring. And so the tragedy by the time you get to the end of this story, but also the end of the Gospels, is that they miss out on what Jesus offers because they didn't have the courage and the imagination to consider what he was offering. But I have uh, high hopes for us this morning. Um, I have higher hopes for you. And so my prayer is that as we work our way through the today's passage, uh, picking up one or two of these terms and you know, just playing with them in some ways for a little while, uh, that God would in some way uh, allow your imagination to uh, unlock new doors for you, uh, to walk into new worlds as you uh, discover or perhaps rediscover uh, the beauty and the depth and the meaning of a life with Jesus. Uh, in terms of how we're going to do it, uh, there'll be four basic parts to our time. The first part, we just really want to zoom in and examine the, the call and the conversion of a man named Levi. Uh, and the reason we want to zoom there first is because it's the events of that that get the attention of the Pharisees, the religious leaders. So that'll happen. They'll come along and it's then in discussion with them that Jesus will offer uh, his three or four key words that we'll look at as we go through uh, to sort of challenge their thinking, explain what's happened, and uh, get them to understand why he came. So, as I say, uh, what is it? Uh, Levi, then doctor, bridegroom, new wine. That's, that's where we go. So if you've got a Bible, uh, we're in Luke chapter 5. Always good to have it open in front of you. And... We'll start with uh, the call of Levi. Let's jump in verse 27. <clears throat> it says, after this, so Jesus has just healed a paralytic. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Now, it's a quick little story. Uh, there's one more verse sort of contained in this story, but... Uh, it's a very brief description of what, frankly, is a remarkable moment uh, for several reasons. The first is that this guy, Levi, is almost certainly the Apostle Matthew. 
Right? So this, one of the 12 disciples, uh, the guy who writes the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, you say, well, if it's Matthew, why is he called Levi? The short answer is that in the New Testament, it seems at least semi-common for people to have two names. And so you might know that Simon was also called Peter. Uh, Saul was also called Paul. Apparently, Levi was also called Matthew. Uh, how do we know? Well, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, in that version, the guy sitting at the tax booth is Matthew. But he's Levi here. Seems to have two names. So he's one of the 12 disciples, first of all. Second of all, what's remarkable is that he was a tax collector. You see, Palestine at this time was under the rule of the Romans, and the Romans had a system of employing local people to collect taxes on their behalf. The thing is, what they did is tended to overlook if those locals sort of, you know, some for you, some for me, if they, if they overcollected. Uh, yes, as long as they gave it to Rome, you can take a little extra off the top, that's fine. So great for the tax collector, but what it means is that the local people, the Jewish population, hated them. Uh, they saw them as traitors, as extortionists, and having effectively sold their soul to the devil. Uh, which again is, is part of what makes Jesus' choice to go and say hello to this guy so remarkable. Because Jesus was a religious leader. Now, he didn't go through the same schools as everyone else did, uh, but by this stage, he's, he's developed a reputation as a man of God. And so people would expect him to treat the tax collector like all the other religious leaders treated tax collectors. That is, they walk past him, they ignore him, certainly didn't go and speak to them. But Jesus, he doesn't just go up and say hello. He actually says, follow me. And, and somewhat remarkably, Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. In some ways, it's easy to miss the magnitude of what Levi has just done there. See, this is not the first time that uh, Jesus has called someone to follow him. Actually, at the start of chapter 5, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, Jesus calls his first disciples, Peter and one or two others, and he says, follow me. Uh, they leave everything and do so. The thing is, they're fishermen. If it doesn't work out with Jesus, they can just go back to being fishermen, as Peter actually does uh, later on, at least for a time. But w with Levi, this is a fork in the road. Because uh, if things don't work out with Jesus, there's no going back to be a tax collector. The Romans are not going to let this guy come back if he's left his post halfway through a shift. But... Despite the cost, Levi decides it's worth it, gives it all up, bets the farm on Jesus, gets and gets up and follows him. What's remarkable as well is that he doesn't seem at all sad about that. I've just given up everything. And what's his first thing? What is the first thing he does? It says, verse 29, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. I love that. Uh, on the one hand, it's a banquet for Jesus. And so despite the fact that he's just sacrificed everything for Jesus, he still wants to say thank you, Jesus, and hold a banquet in honor of him. Uh, that's a sign of a genuine conversion. The second reason I love it is because he's holding his own you know, little Explore Alpha. You know? <laughs> he wants to get his friends, uh, his colleagues, his workmates to, to come and get to know this guy who's just totally transformed my life. Again, it's only three verses, but it is in some ways just this beautiful, remarkable story. Um, 
And part of me would love to finish there. You know, it feels very nice when we finish there. Uh, but we will press on because it's, it's the events that happen here that get the attention of the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And so uh, they come along and it's in the interaction with the Pharisees that Jesus is going to start giving us these three or four key words. So let's do the first one, doctor. Uh, we'll see Jesus use the language of doctor, call himself a doctor in response to their first question. So let's read the question, verse 30. It says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect, complain to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, the Pharisees tended to divide the world into two halves. You had the sinners and you had the righteous. Uh, the sinners were people like the tax collectors, uh, others like prostitutes, you know, your classic immoral people, as well as, frankly, all non-Jews, Gentiles. They're sinners, and the righteous, surprise, surprise, were made up of them and sort of the pious Jew. And in their mind, they could see of no reason why sinners and righteous would ever mix. Why would the righteous hang out with the sinners? That you, they have no imagination. And so they come to Jesus, and, and the, or at least his disciples. Now, the question does seem to assume that Jesus is among the righteous. You know, at least at this point, they're happy to admit that. What they can't understand is, why would you hang out with the sinners? As if they're thinking, Jesus, surely you know that God loves the righteous, but is opposed to the sinners. Surely you know it's only a matter of time until we get what's coming. You know, peace and prosperity for us, the righteous, and doom and destruction for the sinners. So why would you sully yourself by mixing with these um, you know, infidels? Uh, well, Jesus' response to the question is masterful because with one carefully chosen word, he is going to build an entire new world and invite the Pharisees in. Take a look. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Right, think of a doctor's waiting room or a hospital ER. Who's there? Is it the healthy or is it the sick? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? Right, for the Pharisees, the so-called sinners were outcasts. God was going to judge them. They canceled them. Therefore, what you did not do was mingle with them. Uh, for Jesus, those that the Pharisees called sinners were sick. They were suffering. God loved them. What they needed was a doctor. And Jesus says, that's why I've come. I am the doctor. The thing is, I'm not like any old doctor. I don't just sit there and wait for the sick to come to me. I'm going to go and find the sick. I'm going to call the sick, like he does with Levi. You know, uh, Back in verse 27, if you have it in front of you, uh, Luke says, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. Uh, a bunch of the commentators will pick up on that word saw. So he saw Levi and say, uh, that word saw means something more than just he noticed. Uh, the word uh, has the sense of examining something or perceiving something above and beyond what's visible through the eyes. And so the impression is not just that Jesus is walking along and he notices Levi. Not even that he's walking along and he looks at, at Levi. But almost like he, 
he looks into Levi. He plums the depths of his soul. Like a good doctor, he, he assesses things. And what does he see? We don't know, but given the way that the story continues, you could have a guess. I suspect he sees when he looks into his soul, not just a sickness of the soul, but probably also Levi's awareness of that sickness. As if Levi knows something is not right in his life and he needs healing. Which, by the way, is in stark contrast to the Pharisees. You see, in this conversation, when Jesus says, look, I haven't come to call the righteous but sinners, he's not saying to the Pharisees, and you guys are really healthy. You're the righteous. You don't need me. He's being ironic. Uh, The Pharisees needed Dr. Jesus just as much as the tax collectors and everyone else, including you and I. Problem was, unlike Levi, they were too proud to admit it. And so in the end, they miss out on the healing completely. Before we move on, I want you to take note of what Dr. Jesus' prescription is. You know, you go to the doctor, what do you need to get healthy? Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus didn't condone the lifestyles of the so-called sinners any more than the Pharisees did. He just didn't cancel them. Instead, he called them to repent. And in calling them to repent, he's calling them out of a life of sin and into a life of following him. Grace City, repentance is the path to healing. Now, that's sometimes hard for a sick soul to hear, but it's what we need. Uh, Tim Keller once wrote, repentance is like antiseptic. You pour antiseptic onto a wound and at first it stings, but then it heals. Uh, That's true whether you're repenting for the first time or for the 51st time. Uh, Some of you are here and Jesus, if you like, is standing at the booth of your life saying, follow me. Uh, He hasn't just looked at you, he's looked into you and he sees a sickness of the soul. But the good news is he's the doctor, he can fix it. The question is, will you have the courage? Will you have the imagination to stand up, leave everything and follow him? Others of you have been following Jesus for years, but some sin has tripped you up. You know, you've grazed your knee and now the wound is infected. And you're holding on to it. You need the courage to trust the doctor. He says, What you need is repentance. It'll sting, but apply it and it'll heal what you need. Finally, can I encourage you to keep an eye out for people like Levi who maybe have a sense of their need, a sense that something's not right. Um, During uh, last week, I went surfing with a guy. Uh, We didn't really know each other maybe a year ago, but we sort of met in the water and, you know, conversation begins as you're just sort of waiting. Uh, He knows, uh, you know, what I do. Um... Anyway, just last week he said, Tim, I think I'm having a midlife crisis. Uh, I find myself asking, is there more to life than this? If you know the alpha promo video, I'm like, I've just got the course for you. Uh, I didn't say that, but we did talk about some, it was an excellent conversation actually. 
Um, point is this, you will have plenty of family and friends in your life who I suspect will be a little like the Pharisees, uh, full of false confidence in their own spiritual health and no interest in Dr. Jesus. But every now and again, perhaps likely, regularly, you might meet people who, a little like Levi, do have a deep sense that something's not right, but maybe they don't know where to go to get healing. When you meet them, can I beg you, point them to the doctor, the only one who can heal the problem of their souls. Number one, he's a doctor. Second of all, he's a bridegroom. Uh, We're going to get this... Uh, one again in response to a question that comes in verse 33. Apparently one objection wasn't enough. They've got to raise a second one. We don't just like who you're hanging out with. We also don't like what you're doing when you do it. And so in verse 33, they say, they said to him, John the Baptist's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Uh, Fasting is the practice of going without food, sometimes also water, for a set period of time. Now, uh, in the Old Testament, the Jewish law only ever required it of God's people once a year. You can read about it in Leviticus 16. It's on the Day of Atonement. It's a 24-hour fast. But it's once a year. Everything else, well, it's optional. Uh, The thing is, by the time uh, Jesus is around in the first century AD, fasting has effectively become a prerequisite for any form of religious commitment. Um, it was a sign, if you wanted to be a pious Jew, the expectation was you're fasting and you're doing it regularly. Now, there's a, there's a variety of reasons someone might fast, but probably the, the predominant one was as an expression of mourning. You say, what are they mourning? Well, again, there's a range of things, but a key thing in the first century, they're mourning as a nation is the fact that there's a sense in which they're still in spiritual exile. What do I mean? Well, they've, been, they've, they've left captivity in Babylon. They're back in the promised land. Uh, but there is still this sort of lingering sense that things aren't quite right. God's promises haven't quite been fulfilled. You know, the Romans are still in charge. And so Israel as a nation, as a people, are in a stage of mourning. Everyone's doing it including John the Baptist and his disciples. And so the question to Jesus, why don't you do it, is entirely appropriate. It's a natural question to ask. But once again, with one word, Jesus flips the conversation on its head and invites the Pharisees into a whole new world. Take a look with me from verse 34. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom? Fast while he's with them. Uh, we would call the bridegroom the groom today. Uh, and, you know, for fun, think of the friends of the bridegroom as the bridal party. You know, the groomsman, the best man, that group. Question, can you make them fast when the groom is around? Heck no. You, you've been to a wedding, haven't you? Those guys are eating and drinking. They're cheersing you one, one another every five minutes. That's just, that's how weddings are. That's even more in a Jewish wedding in the first century. Uh, A village wedding lasts for about seven days. The guests and friends of the bridegroom have no other responsibility but to enjoy the party. Uh, There's song, there's drink, there's dancing, there's food. It's a festive occasion. What's the point? Jesus is saying, it is entirely inappropriate for the disciples to fast when I'm around. You fast at a 
at a funeral. You feast at a wedding. And my presence brings the joy of a wedding ceremony. And so it's right to celebrate. Now, it is worth saying Jesus will allow for a time when his disciples will fast. It's in verse 35. You can read it if you want. So he's not against the principle of fasting in general. His, the big idea is that his presence supersedes that principle altogether. And again, Levi does seem to grasp this. Because just think it through. What is the first thing he does after his conversion? Does he fast and mourn over his sin? Well, he could have. I'm sure the Pharisees would have really liked him to do that, you know, seven-day fast to recognize that I've lived a life of sin. That's not what he does. Instead, he hosts a party. He has a banquet in honor of Jesus and then invites everyone to come along. See, life with Jesus is radically different to life with the Pharisees. Uh, have you... Uh, as you, I don't know about you, I, I get the impression that life as a Pharisee was rather dull and boring, don't you? As you read through the New Testament, I don't get the impression that there was a whole lot of joy and celebration in those guys' lives. They seem to be the fun police and that's about it. Now, I'm not suggesting life with Jesus is one big party. If you don't know this already, let me just make it clear in the life of following Jesus, it is always the cross before the crown. It's suffering before glory. So don't hear me saying something different. There is also a sense in which the metaphor Jesus is using is trying to communicate something about significant in the hist uh, salvation historical moment. It's a big word. What do I mean? Jesus is with them in the flesh right there in a way that he won't be when he's taken away from me. And so there, there is an inappropriateness about fasting when he's there. Okay, sure, one day he won't be in the same way that he is, so maybe we could fast then. But even if we allow for all that, I do think the language of the bridegroom is supposed to unlock the doors of our imagination. It's supposed to invite us into a world where we see that life with Jesus whether it's face-to-face, -face, whether it's by him indwelling us through his spirit, is about spiritual feasting far more than spiritual fasting. By which I mean life with Jesus is supposed to be marked by joy, celebration and gladness more than sorrow, mourning and sadness. Now again, I want to be careful. Uh, I'm not suggesting you won't have dry times. Hard times. Some of you are in the middle of those right now. To some degree, we need to know that's normal. It's what's expected, what we should expect this side of heaven. Remember, there's times of fasting. There is a place for fasting and mourning. I guarantee you, when Jesus was taken away from the disciples, they mourned, they fasted. But you don't get the impression that that was their modus operandi. It wasn't, it wasn't their neutral. It wasn't where they sat. And nor did they ever kind of give up hope that, well, this, I guess this is what it's like now. Instead, they, they always seem to fight for joy, uh, knowing that even if life is hard and throws all sorts of curveballs at them, one day uh, the great bridegroom will return and give them a seat at the greatest banquet that this cosmos has ever seen. You see, the story arc of history, 
story arc of the universe is a comedy, not a tragedy. Not a comedy in the sense that it's funny, ha ha ha, but in the sense that it ends well. With a wedding banquet, of all things. That is the story that Jesus invites us into. And so, yeah, in life there are times of fasting, times of mourning, and sometimes a lot of it. But in the life of following Jesus, it, it is shot through with an undercurrent of feasting because Jesus is the bridegroom and he will one day give us a seat at his table. Doctor, bridegroom, let's finish with new wine. The first two come in response to a question. This one, Jesus just, you know, let, don't worry about the question. I'll just launch in. Uh, so he, he gives them two parables. Uh, they're both they're short, pithy statements. They both affect. They are a little different. They both effectively say the same thing. Uh, I'm going to major on the second one. So the first is that about a patch. The second is about new wine. I'm majoring on the second one because Jesus carries that one through to the last verse of our passage, as we'll see. But let's jump in. What, what are the what are the two parables? Well, verse 36. No one tears a piece out of a new garment. To patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. Uh, that one is fairly straightforward, right? If I rip my favorite pair of old jeans, there's no point in me going to the store buying a brand new set of jeans if I'm about to cut them up in order to, to repair an old set. Not only will I ruin the new set, it won't match the old set, so it, it, it's foolish. The second one uh, requires a little more knowledge of how wine is made and uh, ancient practices, but let's have a look. Verse 37 to 38. No one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Uh, most wine in the ancient world was kept inside freshly cleaned animal skins. Uh, now, when the skin was fresh, it was able to stretch and expand as the wine fermented. You know, you put it in and it continues to expand as it ferments. Uh, but the older the skin got, the more it would dry out, the more brittle it would become, and the, the greater the risk that it would crack and you'd lose everything. And so that's why you'd always put new wine inside new wine skins. If you put it in an old one, the pressure that happens as it ferments is far more likely to crack the skin, at which point you lose both your wine and your skin. So there's the parables. What's the point? Well, they're both making a similar point in slightly different ways. And so to the people he's speaking to, Jesus is saying, I didn't come to patch up the holes in your experience of first century Judaism. I'm bringing a whole new garment. Uh, likewise, I'm not going to be poured into the dry wineskin of first century Jewish practices. They can't hold me. I have come to bring the new wine of the gospel, and the new wine of the gospel needs a whole new set of wineskins flexible enough to expand as the gospel ferments and the, go and the nations are brought in. That's what he's doing to them. I think most of us, at least conceptually, can go, okay, I can sort of see that. But does it have any relevance for us? Well, let me put it like this. Uh, maybe you've noticed a hole in your life. Uh, maybe, like my friend, you've noticed that 
there's a sickness of some sort. You don't know how, what it is or how to get it fixed, but you, you've noticed something. In some ways, I'm pleased that you've noticed it, but my warning is this. Jesus has no interest in patching up the holes in your old life. He wants to give you a new life. Uh, likewise, Jesus has no desire for you to try and pour him into your old life. It can't hold him. It's too dry and brittle. It's not going to match. It, it's going to explode. Instead, Jesus wants you to open yourself up to him as a new receptacle, ready for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in your life. Uh, C.S. Lewis makes a same point with a different metaphor, so let me give you three. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. Uh, you knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little college, cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Doctor, bridegroom, you are. Grace City, I want you to imagine, as I close, uh, your life with Jesus. I know many of us are followers of Jesus already, but what does life with Jesus look like? Imagine it. Uh, Levi, in some ways, is the model. You know, through repentance, he's healed by Dr. Jesus. Uh, that doesn't lead to a life of all sorrow, but to feasting in his presence and a willingness to experience the expansive work of God in his life. Is that your experience? It could be. Having said that, it takes courage and imagination to experience it. See, uh, you might have noticed as it was read out that Jesus finishes on a kind of bizarre note. Uh, read with me verse 39. Jesus, he's done the parable and then he says, No one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Now that's confusing given what is just said, because it's like, well, I thought the new thing was Jesus and why... Um, and we've also got in our minds, it's like, you know, older wine is better than new wine. So he's not saying, if we just make it up, that the 15 grange is better than the 33 grange. He's not making it. First, the word better in the original is actually good. And so if you have an ESV translation, it will say the old is good. Second of all, he's making a point about those who are so stuck in their ways that they're not willing, they don't have the imagination to try the new thing. As if they're holding their glass of old wine and going, yeah, I'm kind of I know this one, it's familiar, it makes me comfortable, I grew up with it. I can see that Jesus is offering me a different kind of wine, but I think this one's better, this one's good, I'm okay. That's the Pharisees. Jesus is offering them something different, but they don't have the imagination to think that possibly what he is offering compares in any way to what they have. 
and so they miss out. My plea is not to make the same mistake. There's healing, joy, and a whole new life for Jesus. But you need the courage and imagination to follow him. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus and his wonderful way with words. The way that he just uses such simple concepts, but in so doing opens up new worlds of meaning for us. We thank you that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the doctor that we need. He's the bridegroom. With him there is feasting, and one day he will return to take us to be with you. That he is the new wine, not interested in inhabiting an old thing, but increasingly fermenting in our life to do a new thing. We pray that we would be open to that, to love and serve you, and to walk, if you like, with imagination as we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.